Tonight we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture uh, that is focused on a time in the life of David where I think those words that we just sung particularly rang true for him. Lord, I need you. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 63. And actually, really just one verse from Psalm 63, but uh, we'll look at a couple of the first verses here and focus our attention on Psalm 63 and verse number 4 in a sermon that I've titled, Finding Reasons to Praise God. Finding Reasons to Praise God. For those that may be unfamiliar with the context of Psalm 63, it's most people are in agreement that Psalm 63 was written by David when he was chased out of Jerusalem, out of the palace, as Absalom's rebellion was in full, full force. Um, if you can remember back to some of the record in 2 Samuel 13, 14, and 15, we have there the account of Absalom, who is David's son, who is seeking to take away the throne from his father. And he builds up quite a coalition with him to the point that basically he scares David out of Jerusalem altogether. And David retreats into the wilderness. And it's believed that this psalm, Psalm 63, is one of these wilderness psalms that David wrote during that time. Now, I'm approaching it that way. Uh, and I think the context dictates that this is possibly the, the scenario upon which David wrote these words as he was led by the Holy Spirit. But what we see here is that throughout the entirety of Psalm 63, and we're not going to look at all of it tonight, but it's a really great psalm, only 11 verses, and I encourage you to read it through on your own. But what we see throughout the psalm is a passionate plea from King David to God as he's yearning for God here. Now, the soul of David has been crying out for spiritual nourishment, but the flesh of David has withheld that which his soul has cried out for. If you're familiar with the circumstances behind Absalom's rebellion, Amnon, his half-brother, had done something horrible to Absalom's sister Tamar. Nothing had been done by David the king, the father. He didn't do anything. He should have intervened. He should have done something. Nothing was done. Two years went by as Absalom waited for David to do something to Amnon, and eventually he took matters into his own hands and took his half-brother's life. Now, that root of bitterness that took place that was being fueled within Absalom just led to not just end everything at killing Amnon, but wanting to take away his father's throne. And all of this was festering, and again, David, although he's known as a man after God's own heart, the Bible shows us some of the highs of David, but also shows us a lot of the very low valleys that he went through. And I love that about Scripture because a man who's referred to as a man after God's own heart and one that we would hold up on a pedestal in many ways because was there any better than King David as far as the kings over Israel? Yet we see so many flaws of him, but we see that he's human. We see that there is hope for us because... How many of us are any different than a man like King David? Now, we may not exactly line up with everything that he did and, and say, yes, I've done exactly that. 
But we have highs and lows in life. We have seasons where we're following God, that we have seasons when we're not. And this occasion, which led to David being chased out of the temple, out of the palace, rather, in Jerusalem, and out into the wilderness, was an occasion, a season of his life, where David was not seeking after God. He was not obedient in, in, in communing with God, and it was evident because his soul, what he describes here in the first several verses, is just starving. It is on life support, if you want to think of it that way. It is crying out for spiritual nourishment, and David has been depriving his own soul of this. Notice what it says in the first three verses. He says, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Now think about this for a moment. The first verse says he, he's longing for God. His soul is so thirsty that it's as if he's in a dry and, and he, says, uh, he, he says, it's as if he's in a dry and a thirsty land where there's no water. Had God left him? No. Had God abandoned him where he was as far as being king over Israel? It wasn't the problem on God's end. It was the problem on David's end. And he's recognizing that his soul has been starving, has been thirsting, and hasn't been getting the spiritual nourishment it needs. And it forced, it, it took all the way to David being chased out of the palace and into the wilderness for him to realize just how much nourishment his soul was lacking. And so these God-orchestrated events of Absalom's rebellion and David fleeing from Jerusalem into the wilderness, they allowed David to finally realize and acknowledge that giving in to the desires of his flesh had brought him no good fortune. David was faced with the reality that even though he was king, his relationship with God was almost non-existent. God had established him as king. God had set him up with great riches and incredible wealth. God had made him a mighty man of valor. God had made him a leader that the people could look up to and would rally behind. God had even promised that he would give him much more if he even asked for it. But David sought in this season to please himself his own way. And this turning from God and elevating himself cost him greatly as family drama would, es would escalate into family tragedy. As one tragedy would give way to another, still David continued in his own way rather than fully seeking God out and dealing with these matters the way that God had instructed him to deal with them. So his soul was panting. That's the picture that we see here. He he's literally panting because he doesn't have the nourishment that he's been begging for. His soul has been crying out for it, but his flesh has prevented that from getting what it needed. But David was too consumed with everything else around him to notice that he's suffering so bad spiritually. God wasn't on his radar during these times because he didn't have time for God. Giving time to God became more a matter of convenience and for a long time, it hadn't been convenient for David. He was far too preoccupied with himself to give any time to God, despite how much his soul was crying out for God. But God, not willing that his, his own children would be forsaken, he orchestrated these events 
to see to it that David would be out in the wilderness where he'd be away from all the comforts that he had in the palace and all the opportunities to distract him from God. He stripped it all away, sent him out into the wilderness where David would be alone with just himself and God, where he could acknowledge his wretched condition, that it was his own problems, his own sin that allowed this situation to come up in the first place and that he would need God again and need to be seeking after him. So he describes how great God has been to him. That's what he's talking about there in the first three verses. Again, he says, Lord, I, he says, I wish to see thy power and thy glory so as I've seen thee in the sanctuary. He hasn't been to the sanctuary. He's missed all this time of fellowship and communion with God because he's been preoccupied with his own thing. And now that he's away from all of those comforts, he's recognizing just how miserable his life is and it's all his own fault. He's wishing to get back to the time where he remembers how much joy he had in life and the joy that he remembers of God there in the sanctuary. As he considers his life with, with all the ups and downs that he's gone through, even at its best, it wasn't anything in comparison to the life and fellowship that he had with God, and so he longs for all that to be restored. And notice what we see in verse number four, and this is where we're going to camp out here this evening. He says, Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. So David here is rededicating his life to God. He has realized the error of his way that has brought so much tragedy and hardships, not even just himself, but his entire family. And he acknowledges that what has been missing in all of it is God. He's reminded of the sweet fellowship with God and it hits him that in all of the great things that he's experienced in his life, he says, nothing, nothing comes better than the time that he has been with God. He says, I wish to see thy power and thy glory so as I've seen thee in the sanctuary because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. So he's coming to the end of himself and it takes coming to the end of himself out in the wilderness for himself to realize, God, I tried it my way and it's failed so miserably and what I'm realizing is that I had it so wonderful when I was actually seeking after you and having that regular communion with you. Perhaps you have somewhere you go or something that you do that is a highlight for you, something that makes you feel good, that makes you feel comfortable, that makes you feel complete, something that makes you sit back and think, right here, I have everything that I need. Maybe it's around the dinner table with all your family. Maybe it's out hiking. Maybe it's, you know, whatever it may be, on vacation. There are things that we do and places that we're able to go where we think, you know what? If I could just capture this moment and extend it as long as possible, that would be just perfect. We feel that way because the things that we can surround ourselves with make us feel good. But what about when all of those things are removed and they're all taken out of the picture? What happens when you're taken out of your element, out of your comfort zone? And what happens when you're taken away from all the things that you felt were enough for you to feel good and to feel content? That if you could have all this, then you'd be good. What happens when all of that is removed? What then? Sometimes it's necessary for God to remove all of those comforts or to remove us from those comforts for us to see that really what we've really needed in life it's not even our family, it's not even you know, nature, it's not even the, the best things that this world can offer, but the real joy in life comes not in all these things, but for us to be 
recognizing that we're complete in him. Again, he says in verse number three, he says, because thy loving kindness is better than life. The idea is he's recognizing that God is really the object that he needs for completion. This is why God was sending him out into the wilderness. This is what God was doing with David. He's sending him out away from the comforts of his palace to reconnect with God and to remind him that the comfort is not in all the things and not in the palace and not in the wealth and not the power, but in the God who has supplied all of that. And he can't help as he's out there, David, but praise God. The way that David expresses his love and his appreciation for God is interesting because he attaches a frame of time to it. Look again at verse number four. He says, thus will I bless thee while I live, while I live. When we're in our comfort zone, when we're in our, our happy place, that comfort and that happiness is always contingent upon being in that particular place surrounded by those, surrounded by those specific people and all the right elements being intact and being present. We may have glimpses here and there of how things should be and how nice it would be to have all these things here, but nothing on earth really lasts, does it? What David found in God was everything on earth, he found in God that everything on earth failed to actually last him any of that lasting satisfaction, failed to give him perfection. And so in essence, what he's saying here is, God, you are the one that is perfect in every way. Your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee, he says. Thus will I bless thee while I live. Everything around David might change, but he says, the one thing that is never gonna change, take me out of the palace, send me out into the wilderness, God, and you're still there. Take me away from all the comforts and all the things that I've grown used to, all the things that I felt brought contentment in my, in my life. And he says, Lord, I still find that you, you alone are where I am complete and you alone are the one that I'm going to bless. That is why he's able to look to God and say that there in verse number four. Thus will I bless thee while I live. David knows that there will never come a day that he will not have a reason to stop blessing and praising God. David realized that even though he'd failed God, which he'd failed miserably, and he would continue to fail and continue to forsake God, God would never fail or forsake him. It was the greatest commitment that David could give to God here. Thus will I bless thee while I live. To bless him as long as he lived, as long as there was life and breath within him, he would praise and worship God. Every moment he was alive, was yet another moment, another reason to praise and worship this God who loved him incredibly well. And David was acknowledging that he had failed to do this in the past, but he was rededicating himself here to God and setting forth a covenant between himself and God that his lips would never fail to give God praise. And this is quite a statement to make, especially as you consider that God wasn't promising to do anything out of the ordinary for David here. It wasn't as if God had come to David and he's telling him, listen, I'm going to bless you more than, you're, more than you could ever imagine. Above and beyond your, your craziest and most wildest imaginations, I'm going to bless you. All God did here was orchestrate a series of events to drive David out of the palace into the wilderness where he would finally be able to hear the cries of his soul. It wasn't as if God was showing David that his kingdom was about to be restored. It wasn't as if God was showing David that the family that has been in all sorts of issues and tragedies is all going to be reconciled and all the problems are going to finally go away. God wasn't telling him any of this. 
David is crying out to God by himself without God needing to say a single word. David has no idea how any of this is going to unwind and play out. But he comes to understand that even if life never, get, get, never gets back to normal, he will still always have God. He may be killed at the end of this. Absalom, he's certain, may end up taking the throne and may end up taking his own life. He may lose his throne. He may have his family completely ripped apart and destroyed. A whole host of issues may arise, but none of those matter to him because God has once again become the object of David's desire. And he says, thus will I bless thee while I live. David knew what it was like to be in close fellowship with God, but over the years, he had fallen out of that fellowship. But now that fellowship was restored, he was not going to let it go. There was an absence of God from his life because of David's own sin. And the moment that he was forced to confront God and confront his own wretched condition in the, well, in the wilderness, he realized what he'd been missing all along. And he realized what led to the situation in the first place. He commits himself to God because he knows that this is what he should have been doing from the beginning. But more than that, this is what brings the most joy in his life. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. David is not committing himself to God because he's hoping that God is going to bless him in return. He's committing himself to God because he knows there is nothing better, nothing more wonderful than rejoicing in God. It has taken some time for him to realize this, but he's realizing that God is everything. God is everything. He can have the whole world. He can have the greatest and most powerful army. He can have the most wealth and power known to man. But without God, he says, it's all meaningless. God, he says, you are everything. He knows that his commitment to God doesn't mean that his life is even going to miraculously get better. That all the problems that he is faced with will suddenly disappear. And that his family is going to be restored from all the broken relationships. And that's why he says... Thus will I bless thee. Thus will I bless thee. Lord, he says, your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee and I will bless thee. I'm not going to bless my circumstances. I'm not going to bless the hopeful outcome that I have. I'm not going to bless my health. I'm not going to bless my children. I'm not going to bless my crown, my wealth, my power, but anything else other than you. Lord, you could shower me with blessings as you've done before, but it's not the blessings and it's not the gifts that I will bless. It is always going to be you, Lord, because that is where I fell off track to begin with. Lord, my life may fall apart. My family may forsake me as they've done. All I have may be taken from me, but I still have reason to bless and rejoice in you, he says, as long as I shall live. Thus will I bless thee while I live. Lord, if no one else around me blesses you, I will be alone in blessing you all the days of my life. And this is what David was saying. And I wonder how many of us could say the same. How many of us could step back from everything that God has blessed us with and recognize that our praise is due to the giver and not the gifts? And should it all be taken away, would we still have that same joy in our lives? Or have we actually relied upon the gifts more than we realize that should it all be stripped away, we might look at God and say, well, why did you do that? And what did I do to deserve this? David had to learn this lesson the hard way, as is, is the case with many of us. But God is always deserving of our praise. 
and we always have reason to rejoice in him. Sometimes it's necessary for God to teach us the same lesson, the same way that he taught David, to remove us from everything that has become good and comfortable in our lives. It'll hurt. In many cases, it's incredibly humbling. But it's what's necessary to show us often how misguided we've been by putting ourselves before God or trying to think that we don't need God part of the scenario. As long as you're alive and you're breathing, you have every reason to praise and rejoice in God if you're a believer. Sometimes we allow, though, the circumstances of our lives to dictate our praise to God and even the joy that we should have in life. And it's at those times that we need to run straight to God's word. It's the communion and the fellowship that we need the most when we're shaken by the circumstances of life. It has been said that there is enough in the Bible for us to live upon forever. If we should live longer than Methuselah, there would be no need for a new word from God. If we should live until Christ returns for his believers, there would be no need for the addition of one single word. If we should go down as deep as Jonah, or even descend as David said he did into the belly of hell, still there would be enough in the Bible to comfort us without a supplementary sentence. The Bible will always remind us that we have every reason to praise God and to rejoice in him, and we will never exhaust all of those reasons. One of our biggest problems, though, is that we think we're already doing what is right and okay in the eyes of God because we read the Bible and because we attend church. We think that we're praising God and even rejoicing in him enough because we know the truth and we know all the right teachings and all the right doctrines of the Bible. But let me remind you that David knew the truth and he knew the right doctrines of the Bible as well. In fact, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David's written quite a bit of our Bible that we have in front of us. And yet he found himself suffering knowing the truth. He still found himself suffering because knowing the truth and actually living it are two completely different things. When the prophet Nathan approached him after his sin with Bathsheba, Nathan told him the story of the rich man and the poor man and the little ewe lamb that was taken from the poor man by the rich man. David was incensed. He was outraged and he demanded that justice be served. He knew right from wrong. And that is exactly why Nathan presented the issue the way that he did. So David would be forced to acknowledge his own sin. Knowing right from wrong doesn't mean you're always going to do what is right. Knowing that you should be seeking after God and rejoicing in him all the time doesn't mean that you're going to be looking for a reason to rejoice in him all the time. If someone asked you what you should be doing, you'd admit that you should be looking to God, that you should find a reason to rejoice in him. And if you're really looking, you don't have to look that far. But knowing and acting don't always go hand in hand. Don't be foolish to think that just because you believe the right things, therefore you are right and you're doing what is right. There are many people who believe what is right but act completely wrong. David was sent out into the wilderness not because he was doing what is right. He knew what is right, but he was doing what was wrong. And God sent him out into the wilderness to eat a huge slice of humble pie. He was forced to have all of the problems lay bare right in front of him and see what it is that had gone wrong, where things had gone off track. And so God brought David here to the wilderness for David to acknowledge a truth that he already knew. 
that there was no communion with God in his life. It wasn't just now that David was realizing that God is worthy to be blessed and God is worthy to be praised every day. He knew this. He knew this all before. He had known this as long as he had known God. But the circumstances of his life caused him to forget to do what he knew he should be doing all along. Many Christians fall into a rut where they aren't looking to God the same. Or they're just not looking to God at all. They aren't finding a reason to look to God. It's not that they have given up on church. It's not even that they've quit reading the Bible. They may still be doing all of that. But it's all become more of an obligation, more of a duty that needs to be done. Rather than a sweet time of fellowship, what it's really designed to be. The joy of communion, the joy of fellowship with God has been lost in so many Christians because the focus is no longer on God, even when they're in church or even when they're opening their Bibles to, to read or even when they go to God in prayer, their focus is no little on God, no, no longer on God, but on what needs to get done that day. I have to make sure and get those bills paid and, and send off those letters to the post office. We need to get the car to the mechanic because we've ignored the check engine light for far too long. After that, we need to hurry and pick up the dry cleaning from the dry cleaners. And then we need to uh, get the, the, take the kids to school. And then we need to get home and mow the lawn and then fix the fence and then water the garden and, and chase the spiders away from the kids' playground set, play with the kids, get dinner uh, up in, in the kitchen and, and wash the dishes, do the laundry, get the kids ready for bed, finish doing the dishes, clean up in the the kitchen, finish folding laundry, put the laundry away, get lunches ready for tomorrow, get ourselves ready for bed, and the list can go on and on and on of all the things that we need to get accomplished. And then we're thinking, okay, once all of this is done, maybe I have some moments to re read a little bit of the Bible. Maybe if I, if, I, if I can quickly get the laundry done, I'll have time to read five chapters of the Bible. But you know what? There's quite a bit of laundry. So maybe I'll just limit that to three chapters of the Bible instead. Uh, but maybe if there's enough time, I can do that. But if I dwindle it down to one chapter of the Bible, maybe the next day I can quickly have enough time to stop by on my way to the post office and get a coffee and a donut. Now, that, that, may, not, not, that may not be the exact way that we think about how our lives go and how crazy things can be and breakdown of what your day is. But that is the way that many of us approach our time with God. It becomes a matter of convenience. And everything else takes priority over it because we look at the level of urgency on these things and some things need to get done today. And then we don't look at the word of God and spending time with him as something that needs to get done today. And even if we're viewing it as something that needs to get done today, it becomes more of an obligation than an actual time of fellowship and communion with God. It becomes a matter of convenience. And when it's a matter of convenience... There's hardly time that is convenient to spend with God. And this is exactly why time in the wilderness, I believe, is necessary for many of us. Because it's often in the wilderness where we're humbled by God to realize that he must be more to us than any other normal convenience, but must be the priority in our lives. It took time in the wilderness for David to realize that even though he was the Lord's servant, he couldn't serve the Lord all in his own strength. He couldn't even live unless the grace of God abounded towards him. 
I think we become so casual with our Christianity that we forget about how necessary God is in every aspect of our lives. It is by the very mercy of God, Lamentations tells us, that we are still alive and breathing today, that we're not consumed each and every day. Did you ever think about that? Every day, God's mercy is keeping you alive, is keeping you from getting what you deserve. And the grace of God gives you life every day. So you're spared from death and then through the mercy of God, and then by the grace of God, you're given life. And this happens every single day. How many of you wake up every single day and think about that? Think about that, the fact that you're able to open your eyes, breathe in the air, roll out of bed, even if you do have aches and pains, you're still able to do that because God has been merciful and because God has extended grace to you. We all accept God's blessings and we enjoy partaking in all of his benefits. But then we go about our days without so much as considering God at all. Or if we do, it's only because some pressing need came up and we need to do something and let's go to God for it. We're allowed by God to wake up in the morning, to have the strength to get out of bed and to get ready and to go about our day. We eat from the food that God has provided. We breathe in the air which he supplies. Every part of our being moves and functions because of him. We take all that he gives us and then we kind of run out the door without even so much as a, thanks God, see you later. Let alone spending a few quality moments with him. We spend each day living off the benefits and blessings of God, having all the time in the world to enjoy the things that he has given to us, but hardly any time do we take to enjoy him. And what we're telling God is that we don't have enough time to spend with him because we plan on spending more time with the things that he has supplied to us rather than the one who has actually given us all of it. He gave you a job. He gave you a car. He gave you a house, a family, and all those things that you use to fill your home with and so much more, and we're guilty of telling God, and maybe we don't do this verbally, but in our actions, we're telling God that everything he's given to us ends up being more important to us than him himself. David allowed everything else to come between him and God, and God pulled the rug right out from underneath him so that David would fall flat on his face, and he's dealing with this tragedy. He's dealing with this family turmoil, one thing after the next. And God ran him out into the wilderness for him to see exactly why this is going on. What is standing between you and you and your Savior? What is preventing you from saying what David says here in verse number four? Thus will I bless thee while I live. You may not even realize that something is standing between you and God right now because everything seems to be going okay in your life right now. But all of that could come crashing down at a moment. God can humble you in such a way that you'll be forced to acknowledge that you aren't living the way you know you should be living. The last phrase there in verse number four describes... The, the physical expression of David's soul, realizing how much, butter, how much better life with God is than, than anything else. Again, it says, Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. So David is out in the wilderness and he's humbled. 
But as he's renewed in fellowship with God and recommitting to shower God with all the praise, his body can't help but join in the celebration, join in the rejoicing and the praise that his spirit is offering up to God. You can't have joy in your spirit and walk around with your arms hanging by your side and your head hanging low and your feet dragging as you go through life. There's an overwhelming confidence in your demeanor when you fully realize the greatness of God and and all the reasons you have to praise God for the rest of your days. There's a smile on your face that won't go away even if the circumstances of your life go from favorable to unfavorable and the ground beneath your feet seems to be crumbling. Your health could be failing. Your finances could be decreasing. Your house may be falling apart. Your car may only start half the time. You may struggle to pay your bills from month to month. Your entire world may seem like it's completely out of control. But if you're in Christ, you still will find reasons to rejoice in Him. If you're in Christ, no matter what is happening, you'll find reasons to walk tall and confidently, though everything in life seems to be going against you. David didn't make this promise here in verse number four where he says, thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. He's not making this a conditional promise. Lord, that I'll do this as long as you make sure that you take care of every other part of my life. He's not doing that. He's not asking God, God, I'll do this. Just make sure that you keep all the circumstances of my life good and favorable. He's saying, I'm going to do this as long as I live, regardless of what. Lord, when life is good, I will have plenty of reasons to praise you. I'll have plenty of reasons to rejoice in your name. Lord, even if life gets difficult, like it is right now, I will still find reasons to praise and rejoice in your name. And what makes this promise even greater is that last phrase, that there would be a physical representation of David's praise to God. Again, it says there in verse four, thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. What David was saying is that the world would know that he was praising God and rejoicing in his name, even though by the standards of the world, David had no reasons to be thankful and to be praising God. What a powerful testimony and a witness this would be to a watching world as they see David in the midst of calamity, in a situation where they would have given him a free pass to do whatever he wants, to say whatever he wants, and they chalk it up as saying, you know what, he's going through something right now, just let him be. What a powerful testimony to a watching world where he says, even in this, I will bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Think of the impact that you can have on a person's life who sees you praise and rejoice in God even though you're facing one trial after another. You may not even realize how impactful your testimony is to someone else, but the fact that you're visibly still clinging to God and still praising God in the midst of your trials may serve as the greatest example of faith in God someone else may need. When you're able to go through life like the Apostle Paul talks about as he wrote the book of Philippians, finding joy in the midst of all circumstances. When you're able to do that, you're not only made better, but the lives of those around you are forced to acknowledge the presence of God in your life. 
Something is different about you. And people will take notice of that. When by the world standards, you should be having a meltdown. You should be pulling your hair out. You're able to go through life at peace because it's not the circumstances that dictate your joy. It is your Savior, and He is constant in your life. When you can trust in the Lord, no matter what life brings your way, and always find a reason to rejoice in Him, you'll find that God is indeed better than life. Isaiah 26, verses 3 and 4 offer us a great reminder of where our faith needs to rest. Can anyone quote these verses? You're thinking to yourself, why should I be able to quote these verses? If I'm not mistaken, January and February, these were the verses of the month. Anyone? Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord Jehovah, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. The Apostle Paul realized that nothing mattered more than to trust in the Lord at all times. He quickly found out that no matter how godly he lived, the circumstances of life would always be out of his control and were never guaranteed to remain favorable. But he also realized that as unfavorable as they may be, God could still work favorably for his servant. Near the end of his life, he was able to say in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Powerful words. But what we often forget about is what he said prior to that. Philippians 1.20, I want you to notice what he says here. Because it's in this verse, Philippians 1.20, where the Apostle Paul expresses that his devotion to Christ will never falter. He says, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. What he's saying is that it didn't matter what life threw at him. For he was determined to cling to Christ no matter what and glory in him until his final breath. He would make known his love for Christ in every way possible and it certainly wouldn't be by going through life with his hands hanging and his head, his head hanging down and his dragging his feet as he walked, complaining about all the problems as he went on his way. Whatever it is that may have you down today, Whatever it is that is preventing you from going through life, praising God the way he should be praised, daily rejoicing in him, realize it's not worth it. The Lord is infinitely greater than the greatest your life can ever be apart from him. And he is infinitely capable to overcome even the greatest trials that you'll ever see here in this life. And even if it isn't his will, to remove the problems from your life or to remove you from the problems. Remember that if you trusted in him, you have every reason to still go through life joyful. God has not promised that we'll never see troubles, but he has promised to be with us in the midst of those troubles. Is there any greater encouragement to know that the Lord is with you in your hour of need? God does not want us to go through life feeling discouraged and defeated but overjoyed at the realization of his constant presence and his power. 
Maybe you're out in the wilderness right now. Maybe, has God, maybe God has sent you out in the wilderness to show you something that needs to change. But even there, God is still with you. And even there, his presence and his power are felt. The will of God will not take you where the grace of God cannot reach you. So rest assured that the Lord knows all of those who have trusted in him. And even though your grip on him may have loosened, because you've allowed sin and other things to come between you and God, God's grip on any of his children never loosens. And I pray that we might find the words of David here to be true with us and our own personal relationship with God, that in all circumstances, we would find God to be infinitely greater than life, that we would always find reasons to praise and rejoice in his name. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, what an encouragement it is to get a, a snapshot in the life of David. Lord, at a time where David was dealing with some things, Lord, that he should have never dealt with. Lord, not because it, it wasn't fair, but because he had allowed things to go on that never should have. Lord, he allowed sin to come before himself and you. And not confessing that sin had led to all sorts of other issues. And Lord, his life seemed to be spiraling out of control. Lord, we know that you orchestrated these events to lead him out into the wilderness, to get him alone and away from all the things that distracted his attention from you. And Lord, you allowed your servant to get the spiritual nourishment he needed. And Lord, to recognize what had been going wrong all along. Lord, I, I pray for each and every one of us here tonight. Some of us may be out in the wilderness right now. Some of us may need some time in the wilderness. Lord, wherever we find ourselves, I pray, Lord, that we'd be able to look at the situation and the circumstances around us and to realize that whatever they may be, we always have a reason, Lord, to bless you and to rejoice in your name. May we find those reasons. Lord, may we not just know what to do, but may we act upon it as well. We thank you, Lord, for being long-suffering toward us, for being patient in ways that we cannot even imagine, for showing your love for us. And Lord, we need your help along this journey of life. We need those seasons out in the wilderness, as difficult and hurt and as much as they may hurt. Lord, we need them at times to get our focus back to where it needs to be and to restore that right relationship with you that we so desperately need. Help us in all of, that, all of what we need to remain faithful and true to you and find that we are indeed complete only when we're in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.